This is an ABC podcast. Folks, it is time to stop everything as Beverly and I dip into the show archives. We're bringing you two interviews with Australian music legends who are blazing trails in the industry. Milk Records co-owner and ARIA award-winning artist Jen Clover's fifth album, I Am The River, The River Is Me, dropped just in March. It's a significant and meaningful collection that includes songs sung in Te Reo Māori. Beverly, you and I spoke to Jen in 2022 when their lead single, Mana Takatapui, was released. You know what? I've got that album on my record player at home right now, and it's really special to hear Jen exploring their Māori roots. I remember when we played this interview with Jen for the first time, and I lost track of the number of responses that we had that really felt like they were resonating with how Jen was tapping in with Māori roots, but also tapping into matrilineal heritage and also reclaiming language as well. It's such a huge nationwide project to incorporate Te Reo Māori language into schools and institutions. Here, Jen's doing that through art, but also through such a personal lens. Jen Clara, welcome to Stop Everything. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you here chatting with us. And let's talk about your new album, your fifth. It's called I Am The River, The River Is Me, but it also has a Te Reo Māori title as well. Could you tell it to us and also tell us about the significance of this river? Sure. Also, nice pronunciation on Te Reo there. I was trying. I was practicing practicing all morning in my head. Mate, that was good. We tried. Uh, Yes. Well, actually, it's a a Māori whakatoki, which is a proverb, Kowo to awa, ko to awa kowo, which translates to I am the river, the river is me. The front cover of this album is actually me in my river because Māori, when they introduce themselves to each other, um, which is called a pepeha, they always say, first and foremost, my mountain is, my river is, and then my people are. And so I went back to my river, which is about four and a half hours north of Auckland, Tamaki Makoto, and where my mother and my grandmother, great-grandmother, that matrilineal line of Māori wahine, all grew up. And yeah, you'll see me immersed in, in Totowai is the name, or Totowai, if you were to say it properly. There's a deeper conversation around, I guess, what that means. But essentially, it is that connection and kinship to, you know, that river and, and my land. Mm. A lot has happened since 2017 when you released your last record, the self-titled Jen Cloa, which I believe was in the top five of the ARIA charts when it first came out. Can you catch us up to where you were creatively and otherwise as you started to write songs for this album? What was that period like between the last record and this one? Yeah, well, I think anyone who wrote anything during the lockdowns in Nam in Melbourne would have experienced just the sheer focus of being alone. You know, everyone went through things. And I think for me, you know, I always knew I was Māori. Um, my mum was quite a prominent figure within especially the Northland, a published author and head of the James Hanadi Māori Research Centre at the Auckland Uni. So she had all of those connections. But because I grew up here 
on Aboriginal land, I guess it's like any diasporic experience is you know that your people come from somewhere, but until you go home and really connect with that, it's a distant notion. I'd been so busy with milk records and so busy with music and just, you know, the life that sort of came about as that label and Courtney's success, Courtney Barnett, who's the co-founder, sort of took off, that it wasn't really until there was an enforced lockdown where I had the time to start learning Te Reo Māori, the language. And I think that door opening, just a whole lot of things started to come through. I knew it was waiting, but I just think I needed the time and the space to really travel down that path. So in a way, lockdown gave you that space. It really did. You know, there was just nothing that was demanding my time. It just enabled me to go really deep into, you know, what was calling me into that work. I didn't go into it going, I'm going to write the Māori album. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, who does that? I mean, not me. The language started to weave into my songwriting, which was really interesting. And then I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's see what's here. What is it like to sing in your mother tongue, especially when you don't have mastery of it? I know like as some and a fellow diasporic, that can be quite intimidating and a bit stressful and you don't really actually realise how many emotions are wrapped up in there until you actually say the words. What was it like for you? I think for a lot of people there's like actual language trauma, particularly when you're looking at Indigenous populations who in some cases had the language beaten out of their bodies. I think, you know, what you discover as you go down that path of reclamation, reinvigoration, remembering, is why so many people don't. Because it requires real emotional and spiritual labour. But it's so worth it. I think for me, as I get older, I become more and more interested in becoming the fullest, most whole version of myself. And that's all parts of my identities, Māori, Croatian, Irish, being queer, being an artist, all of those outward facing things also have real meaning to me, you know, as far as how I live my life, my values. And so this was a real missing piece and I'm so glad that I pushed through. And I actually had some beautiful support. There's an amazing songwriter, Takahu, is her Te Reo Māori project, otherwise known as Thea. And she grew up speaking her language and really immersed in culture. And she was there to help me along the way just to make sure that I was honouring my ancestors by getting those pronunciations down. And we actually ended up writing a song together. It's a Waiata Māori, so all in Māori. And that's a duet on the album as well, which is really special. There are some really interesting big picture conversations around Te Reo Māori and who gets to speak it, for want of a better phrase. Mm. It reminds me of the conversation around Lord. She released a Solar Power Companion EP, sung in Te Reo Māori, after creating the original album and realising how much of her value systems around caring for and listening to the natural world, as she says it, comes from traditional Māori principles. Now, there was some commentary when she released the album from some Māori people who felt that it might constitute cultural appropriation at the same time a lot more Māori and Pākehā listeners, non-Māori people, embraced the album. It was released as a part of Māori Language Week in 2021. And a lot of people would say that the speaking of the language by Māori and non-Māori people is really encouraged, given that it's a threatened language. 
Where have you sat with those conversations? Yeah, look, it's such a nuanced conversation and I can see both sides. I think it is beautiful that people who live in Aotearoa, who are non-Māori, want to embrace the culture, want to treasure that language. But I can also see how it can be really confronting, particularly for Māori who haven't reclaimed their language yet, who haven't had that time or the money often to be able to speak their own language, to sit in a room with a Pākehā and have them speak fluent Māori to you as a Māori person can just be one of the most wounding experiences, I think, because in essence, the reason why you can't speak your language is because they're there, you know, in the room and present. And it goes back so many generations, and that's the complexity of colonisation itself, is that there's so many layers to it. But my kind of feeling around the Lord situation was she was definitely in consultation. She was working with some real heavyweights, Dame Hinawehimohi, Sir Timothy Kadatu. She had people like Beck Runger and Marlon Williams and like mates there who were helping. I guess if it were me and I had that kind of platform and I was Pākehā, I would have invited already existing te reo Māori speaking, singing Māori artists to come and sing my songs and to put out an EP of Solar Power sung by Māori artists and to use my platform to really uplift the culture in a way that really brings those artists to the fore because we all know who Lord is. Jen, let's talk about the single just for a bit longer because I know the name is significant to you and the word Takatapui is a special word to you. Can you explain what it means and and what it means to you? Takatapui, it's a word that's always been in our language. It basically means a close friend of the same gender. And I think because it's an oral tradition and because of colonisation, we will never really know exactly what that word meant to our people. But today, it basically means the LGBTQI community. So if you're Māori and you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, etc., you would be takatāpui. And so mana takatāpui, the song, is basically the chorus is saying, aroha, love, strong and proud, queer, has to come from within. That's the journey. I think that's something that I've learned as I've got older is like there's no achievement, there's no partner, there's no group of people that are going to be able to approve of me in a way that's long lasting and that in essence today I really feel like my own approval is what matters the most. Mm, It sounds like this record is so many things. It's about celebrating queer culture and identity, about your Māori heritage. You've also said that the heart of the album is about your matrilineal line. Tell us about your ancestry and the women specifically who've inspired and informed this record. I've always felt this strength and I think until I grew up and mellowed out a bit, I was a bit scary. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, people often be like, when I first met you, I thought you were scary. What were they scared of, like in retrospect? Well, I think it's that strength. You know, I come through a line of women who, once you go back 200 years, were warriors. Some of them fighting and strategizing on the battlefield with their male partners. So that's a vibe, you know. <laughs> I used to shy away from that strength because I felt like it wasn't 
femininity or like being too strong or being too powerful was going to turn people away. And I'd get this feedback and go, oh my God, you know, like this strength, it's a bad thing. And I think as I've gotten older, I'm like, no, it's a beautiful thing. Like we all have these natural things that come through us, talents, qualities. And for me, there has been a strength and an ability to lead and build things, make community wherever I go. And so, yeah, I think like that line of women, my mother, Dorothy Illich Cloa, my grandmother, Huriata Puata, my great-grandmother, Marara Tupe, they were all fierce women and no one speaks about them like, ah, Huriata, you know, they're like, oh, you know, when I say who my (laughs) mum is, people straighten up. Mm. And I think that what I learnt about my mother was that she wanted respect more than love. And that's a bold move to walk through life and demand people's respect. She wasn't here to be liked. She was here to be heard. It's interesting, though, Jen, you're saying you feel like you've mellowed. But at the same time, I'm hearing you actually saying, I want to now grasp on to that strength and don't really care. But these things are coexisting into you, the the mellowness, but also like, yes, I want to step into my power. Yeah. The beautiful thing that's happened to me over the years is that it's just balanced out. It's not sort of fueled by needing to prove myself or being angry at how things are or, you know, just all of that stuff that I was trying to work out growing up. I think that you can have a quiet, grounded strength. Some of your heroes feature in the video clip for Mana Tucker. Takatapui. Yes. And I'm curious about how you curated the people who were appearing and also to an Australian audience. Can you explain who they are? The video clip was so epic. Myself and Annalise Hickey, who's also based here in Nam, is a Tongan Australian director. We didn't know any crew, any cast in Aotearoa. Like I knew some of the people that I wanted to be in the clip, but I didn't know them, if you know what I mean. So we spent close to a year having meetings with, we did it the Māori way, which is we took our time and we focused on what's called tanga, which is relational, taking your time to get to know people, where they're from who their people are. What was really beautiful about it is, you know, we'd have Zoom meetings with the cast. We'd talk to them about what land or whereabouts they would like to be, somewhere that was meaningful for them, what they'd like to be wearing, making sure that we really represented them in a way they could feel relaxed and proud of. And then the crew, I ended up working with my cousin who's Takatapui and also we had an assistant director who's Takatapui. So there were quite a lot of Takatapui behind the camera, which was really important to me as well because that's often where the power lies. It was a huge process and what ended up being four minutes of video, you have incredible people like Dr Elizabeth Kitty who's an MP, Greens MP. There's Quack Pitihi who's an amazing young non-binary activist who really champions rangatahi which is young Māori. Jacob Tamata who's an amazing choreographer and Vogue ballroom dancer. The Tifas, this beautiful Māori drag queen cabaret trio who sing all of their own songs. They made 
voices, especially for the clip. There's Tangaroa Paul, who's soon to be Dr. Tangaroa Paul, just done a PhD on Takatapuitanga. I think that's everyone. <laughs> that's yeah. quite a roll call for a short clip. And really the effort that you've described going into it is quite powerful to think about that there's so much more than what you see on screen happening. Another thing that's also happening that is accompanying the new album is that you are publishing your first ever book of poetry, Jen Clower. I am. I'm one of those tragics that wrote poems during COVID. <laughs> well, in your case, did they start off as songs? Well, that's the thing. I was just writing and some of them became songs and some of them just wanted to be poems. I made a little poetry chapbook, which I'm offering to people with the album. And a lot of the songs actually are informed by the poems and vice versa. So it's kind of a companion piece. We'd love it if you could share a poem from the book now. Absolutely. The book is called Ihu, and just a language warning for the poem that Jen's reading, it contains a racial slur. So Ihu is the Māori word for nose. Ihu. My first girlfriend told me I had a bunga nose. Until that day, I had never noticed. And from that moment onwards, I saw it as a liability, a failure in femininity. 23 years later, on my desk, is a photo of my mother and her sister that I am obsessed with. Although I am years away from being, I can see myself coming, in my mother's smiling eyes and my auntie's calm gaze backwards. Tall, ngāpui women, in soft silken gowns, their wavy hair, bold brows, high cheekbones, and proud, defiant noses. Wow, Jen, that is a poem from your book of poetry called Ihu. It's a companion piece to your album, The I Am The River, The River Is Me. When I hear that, it touches on so many of the things that we've already been talking about, race, identity, women. Is the book simply a companion piece or do you not get the complete picture and story of the album unless you're also reading it in conversation with the book? I think that the poems will enrich the experience. I think the album does stand alone as its own body of work. And a lot of the themes are echoed throughout. Why we've seen poetry have such a huge resurgence, why it was so popular over COVID, <laughs> why everyone started reading poetry and writing poetry, is that there's something so intimate and direct about the experience of reading a poem or reciting a poem or writing a poem. And there's a real satisfaction, you know, that feeling when you write a poem and you're like, I think that's pretty good, you know. You know, I guess music is just a different form. And are you going to be touring the poetry? I know Patti Smith, you know, she's known as a poet and a musician. You're tapping into a heritage here. PJ Harvey <laughs> also similarly has just done a poetry tour. Is this going to be... A new side hustle for you? Oh, my God, I love this. Maybe you could manage me, Ben. I'm really... <laughs> yeah, look, I don't know if there's quite enough poetry there for me to be able to do a poetry tour, but I'll definitely do some readings here and there. And, yeah, I want to get back into writing it again as well because it's actually a really beautiful way to start the day. Yeah. Well, just to hop back to the music, anybody who follows you on Instagram knows that you've been giving sort of sneak peek crumbs of what and who is going to be appearing on the album with you. I saw a video of Kylie Oldest absolutely just hammering a solo, just incredible. Who else are you collaborating with on this album? 
Yeah, there's just so many amazing people on this record. Kylie Oldest, Emma Donovan, Liz Stringer. And then, as I mentioned before, Takahu, uh, amazing up and coming, and not even up and coming, but their Tereo Māori project's really going off in Aotearoa at the moment. Members of a kapahaka that are based here in Nam called Te Honongo o Ngā Iwi, which is a hugely powerful experience to perform in the studio and on stage with a kapahaka. And Ruby Solly, who's also Māori and plays traditional taonga pōro, which are Māori instruments, mainly kind of like woodwind, but all sorts of things, yeah. Sounds amazing, Jen Clara. So we're talking about matriarchy, and it sounds like that is a theme that runs all the way through this particular work, your own family story, and then kind of building up a matriarchy of your own in the music is what I'm hearing. Thanks so much for talking to Stop Everything. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jen Clara's album, I Am The River, The River Is Me, is available now, and Jen is currently touring, so you can find all the tour dates on their website, jencloa.com. For those who know the story, the lyrics and video to Jaguar Jones's 2022 single, Who Died and Made You King, is pretty rich with irony. And aside from her career in music, you may know Jaguar Jones, whose real name is Dina Lynch, from her work as an advocate for women in the Australian music industry. Ben, you say Jaguar, I say Jaguar. Jaguar Jones has been helping to push along the Me Too movement in the music industry, firstly by sharing a series of anonymous posts on Instagram revealing details of sexual misconduct that were sent to her, and Jaguar Jones continued to share her experiences and support others to come forward and share their own experiences of bullying, harassment and discrimination in the industry. And her work in the public space contributed to an industry-wide review that was released in 2022. I spoke to my fellow Taiwanese-Australian Jaguar Jones last year, shortly before she competed in Eurovision's Australia Decides event. She ultimately didn't make it through to the competition, but it was a great conversation where she reflected on the preparation that it takes to have a shot at getting to the Eurovision stage. At the time that we spoke, we were slowly starting to come out of COVID lockdowns and plan nights out again. So we started by talking about what it's like to mentally and physically prepare to get back out in front of audiences again. To be honest, I've been trained by COVID to not process. And I look at it as it's in the calendar, uh, but whether or not it will happen, we'll see until like on the day when I actually get to absorb these things. So you just saying that out loud made me go, oh yeah, that's right. That's like on the books, you know? So it feels surreal because the last time I did Eurovision Australia Decides, that was the first time I played to a room of 2,500 people, let alone live TV to like 4 million viewers. That was so much on my like stress body. I don't know, everything. It was overwhelming. And this time around, I feel like I'm a little bit better prepared. Do you think that mental training of not actually believing something will happen until you're there on the stage in a way helps you relax and not put so much weight on things? Well, I think, you know, musicians during the pandemic 
like there's two ways to go about it. You can either continually get disappointed and be heartbroken or just kind of bring it into your stride. This will be your second time on the Eurovision Australia Decide stage. In February 2020, you competed with the song Rabbit Hole. In 2022, you'll be performing with a new original song called Little Fires. What's the process of taking experiences that have been difficult and painful and then transforming it into something that is actually unifying, uplifting, and defiant? How do you know when you're ready inside yourself to start writing that kind of song? I think when you've been able to process the events or the trauma that you've gone through and kind of acknowledge its existence and then decide what to do with that energy. And I've decided to use that energy in a way where I can give purpose and meaning for the tragic events I've gone through and hopefully make an impact on someone else's life for, you know, a a community of people. And I think that's the only way I've been able to almost develop resilience in my life and make everything worth it and take those difficult times into learning lessons where I can share that with other people. I feel like looking at your most recent three releases, there's a bit of progression there in the content. And feel free to tell me if I'm reading too much into it. But I think about Who Died and Made You King, the lyrics there, and then the lyrics of Cut, and now the lyrics in Little Fires, which is about being strong through the pain. Do you think that in a way you're working this out quite publicly and there's a healing process, there's kind of a therapeutic process happening? You are spot on. I think that's the truth. Culturally, I've never been really allowed to kind of express myself publicly. And I mean, not even publicly, but just even out loud in my own personal networks. I've always been trained to just repress and that talking about your mental health or, you know, sharing your vulnerability is a sign of weakness. Being an advocate on the front of the Me Too movement for the Australian music industry really forced me to have to put my artistry aside and prioritize my advocacy, which was quite ironic because I entered the music industry to be an artist, right? So I think, you know, I was staying strong for everyone else during that movement and during that advocacy. And I had to kind of play catch-ups with my own internal processing. I've put myself second throughout that whole movement. And Music has always been a way where I can have honest dialogue with myself and understand what is going on internally. And I think, yeah, the songwriting that you are seeing is exactly that process happening. Who Died and Made You King is probably by far the most angry song I've ever written in my entire catalogue because prior to that point, I was never an angry person. Anger was taught to me to be a bad emotion. But in this process, I've been able to mature and realize that anger is a good emotion. It's all about how you express it. And so Who Died and Made You King was almost like this permission to myself to express anger for the first time. And that vomited out of me. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I know this is an audio interview, but I'm actually wearing a t-shirt that says stay angry. Ah, Yeah. Oh my God, that's <laughs> With an Asian woman's face so on it. So you were just like, yes, I feel <laughs> this right now. <laughs> well, anger, I totally hear what you're saying about anger being pushed down as a negative reaction. But anger 
it can be a very powerful and positive emotion, can't it? Oh, definitely. I think anger is a way to express self-worth to yourself. To feel anger means that you know that your worth is more and you've been undermined and you're being pushed into a place where you shouldn't be pushed into. And so when you allow yourself to express that anger, you're saying, you know what, I know what my worth is and I'm allowed this and I deserve this and I don't need to give you this. So thinking about anger and thinking about the fact that you are a young woman speaking in public about things that have been taboo to speak about and breaking a silence, it makes me think about what's been happening with the 2021 Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, and all of the anger and the fury and the hubbub and the different kinds of interpretations that we're seeing around the photos of her not smiling and actually showing that, hey, she might actually be a little bit angry about the situation. Mm. I relate to it a lot. And it's so hard for me to articulate a well thought out answer because as much as we are having these important conversations in society now, moments like that show that we still have a long way to go for equality and not having double standards. And I struggle to articulate because I know that to be able to push my message through with my advocacy in the Australian music industry and in society, I still have to play to those expectations and standards so that I can be heard. So I totally understand what Grace went through and I am so inspired by her strength and courage to just, you know, stand up to all of that. Mm. Just to bring it back to Little Fires, you have also released a new music video for Little Fires. And I think, Jaguar, that you have a really strong visual aesthetic in all of your music videos. And Eurovision is renowned for its visuals. It's pretty much a feast for the eyes as much as it is about music. I still think about Dami Im in that glittering dress descending from the ceiling and the lights around it. I thought that was a stunning moment. Have you been thinking much about the visual side of things for your Australia Decides performance and how are you going to bring the drama? <laughs> I have been thinking about the visual side ever since I spent a month locked in my house and writing as many songs I, as I can for Eurovision. I write quite visually and I love escaping into the visual world when I'm writing music and that is why you see my music take on quite a visual aesthetic. So I've been thinking about it for a really long time and I've had an idea for a really long time and the first time I had a meeting with SBS, they were just looking at me like, no, you can't do that. Oh, <laughs> And I was like, oh, pretty, please, 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 please. And they're like, no. And then I went and did some like crazy intense research, found everything I could, got examples and presented it. And they were like, actually, maybe we can make this happen. And so I'm really excited to show what I'm going to be doing on stage. And everything's coming together last minute. But fingers crossed, I get to realize that initial visual idea that I had. And it seems like I will be. So there's definitely going to be drama. Okay, well, I'm excited by all the hype that you're bringing. Can you give us like <laughs> a teeny tiny hint of what the drama entails? A small hint can be found 
in the music video. And I guess if you dive into the lyrics, the small hints are all there as well. I feel like I've spelled it out for it to be like played with already. It might be in the title of the song, possibly. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Beverly. <laughs> okay. All right. We'll put a link to the video in the Stop Everything show notes so everybody can watch and get an idea of what the Australia Decides performance might look like. Slight pivot, Jaguar Jones, because I've waited till now to disclose something that we share in common. I'm quite excited about. You don't know this because this is the first time we're talking. Is that we both share Taiwanese heritage. Oh my God, I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. (laughs) I was like, it's got to be that. It's got to (laughs) be. Well, there aren't that many of us around in Australia. No, no. So when you bring it up with like passion, I'm just like, yes, she's going to be Taiwanese. Yes. (laughs) On the radio together, on Radio National, it's kind of a special thing. What is your favorite street food? Stinky tofu. I'm already prepared. No hesitation. No. And it has to be super deep fried, super fermented. Lay it on me. Okay. Okay. Jaguar Jones. She gets the tick. She mentioned the stinky tofu. (laughs) I'm very, very happy. But like... The real question is, yes. what's your favorite street food? Oh, I love anything deep fried. So deep fried mushroom, <laughs> deep fried chicken. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, stinky tofu, yes, which is also deep fried. And I love oyster omelets. Yeah. Oh, yum. Yeah? Yeah. Well, yeah. I have a shellfish allergy, so oh. I can't slither out of that one. But mm. I'll watch you enjoy it. Okay. All right. Okay. Back to the interview. Jaguar Jones is our guest. Now, we have touched on this earlier in the interview, but just to bring it back a little bit more, suffice to say that a lot has happened since the last time you were on that stage in February 2020. Now, we're talking about the pandemic, but we're also talking about the power of the post-it note, let's say, because in July of 2020, you really pushed the Me Too conversation in the Australian music industry via a series of post-it notes that you shared, first about your own experience and then all of the experiences that came to you anonymously that you shared. And that really broke open a conversation that's really hard to have in this industry and in Australia because of the media laws. Looking back, I'm just curious, Did you have any idea at that time what you were kicking off and what are your reflections now in 2022? No, I had no idea what I was going to start with that post-it note. I did the post-it note because I thought it would touch two to three people that was personally in my little network. And if I could just extend that safe space to a handful of people in my personal network, then I was willing to be that safe space for those people who felt like they didn't have anyone else to go to and felt really isolated in the music industry. I didn't realize that what I had tapped into is an avalanche of anger and hurt and trauma and secrets. And it it just spiraled from there. And I realized that This was a conversation that I didn't start. It was a conversation that so many people were waiting for. All I did was just provide a forum where that could start to happen. It was overwhelming. I didn't sleep for six days straight because it took me that long to reply personally to everyone who came into my DM. And I remember straight away thinking, 
I need to be really smart about this. And I started a spreadsheet and just tracked everything. And I didn't know how to navigate this into something bigger because of our defamation laws. But I just knew that maybe the smallest thing I could do was link people together who have shared hurt and trauma. And so that they can have these private conversations that may allow them to feel like they had others with them. For me, that's what it was for me in that process was I learned that I was so far from being alone and that I had just like swallowed this for so long without realizing that, you know, there are so many others with the same experience. And I think from there, something took over me. I'm very justice driven and I've come a really long way. And I think my whole life has set me up to be able to have the strength and courage to really carry it through to a place where it's not just momentum, but actionable change. Through my whole life, it's always been about fighting and standing up for myself and not take anything sitting down and displaying resilience. Like my reflection is, I don't know, but I just knew that I couldn't stay in that culture of silence. I needed to step out of it. And so I just thought really hard and tried to push in very strategic ways so that we can navigate through those complexities of the defamation laws and have conversations that could lead to reform in this music industry. I imagine if you think about what that process has been like, it's kind of extraordinary to reflect that A, you did it, but how it has so dramatically changed your life in ways big and small. How do you process that? And how have you tried to make sure that you are safe and protected and the people that came to you to disclose? Because that's a huge thing. That's a huge act of trust, how they are also taken care of. It was so hard and I had to really be good at boundaries as well, where I was trying to navigate them to professional help because I can't give that to them. I can be there as a friend, but I can't help them process their trauma. So it's a very fine line. And I think I'm constantly learning how to have better boundaries. It was really sad because I'm not only dealing with my trauma, but I had to represent and make sure that all the stories that came into my inbox were being presented as well without disclosing anyone. Uh, It was a really hard time. And because it's such a new conversation in the Australian music industry, and I was one of the very few that was speaking up, there was so much pressure there was a huge lack of support and there were so many forces at play of politics and egos and institutional power that were really trying to like keep me quiet as well. So I honestly look back on the last two years and am really proud of myself because not only are there like institutional power and all the people at the top trying to pressure me to stay quiet, but even in my personal networks, everyone was saying, what do you think you're doing? You're cannibalizing your career. You're putting yourself at risk. And have you thought about how you're going to protect yourself? And all of that anxiety was really scary. But I just knew that I would regret if I looked back on anything and never 
tried my best at making a difference. Mm. And one of the fears that you expressed in an interview, you did worry about how it would affect your career, that blacklisting might occur. Do you know whether that has occurred at all? Are those fears still with you? Look, to be honest, I think it has happened. You know, I have heard people say to me, oh, we don't want chaos or drama if we program her into our festival or whatnot. That has happened, but it doesn't matter because I don't want to be involved or associate with those people who are not wanting to look to the future and make change. And I think the other side of all of this is I've also had a wave of support compared to two years ago. And there are so many people beside me and behind me that has allowed me to have experiences that I never would have had if I stayed in that culture of silence too. So I'll take the wins and I'll take the losses. And it doesn't matter because I think everything I do is guided by my own moral compass. And if it doesn't align with that, then I want nothing to do with it. Mm. And speaking out has proved to be helpful to the entire Australian music industry because when you did that, a lot of other reporting also came along to do with Sony Music and look at the shakeups there. And it's also led to this national review of the Australian music industry. You were on the working group that commissioned that review. Is there anything you can tell us about how that review is progressing? Yes. So it's actually an exciting day. We've actually commenced the music industry review. So I was up all night like coding the website and updating everything. The consultants that we're working with are amazing and are industry professionals in their field in regards to conducting reviews on sexual harm and systemic discrimination in the workplace. But we've opened for participation in focus groups, in one-on-one interviews, in confidential written submissions. And so it's actually a bit of an emotional day for me where I am able to stop and reflect and go, wow, I can't believe this started from a post-it note. And to be honest, I'm going to do a post-it note to announce everything. But it just seems surreal that we're at a place now where we're actually starting conversations like formally and the industry is committed to listening and raising awareness so we can actually look at the issues and create change according to those issues rather than just being like, oh, I know there's issues, but how do we tackle this? We've actually begun those conversations. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to Stop Everything. Thank you so much. And I just will flag as well that it's all to do with the amazing people that I have around me. So even though my plate is full, that plate is shared by so many talented people. So it's not just me out there. Beautifully said. And if listening to this interview has raised any concerns with you and you want someone to talk to, you can contact the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counseling Support Line, 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. Follow us on the ABC Listen app and ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN. And also come join us at the Sydney Writers Festival. We're going to be sitting down with Danny Lavery, the host of the podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood, at five in Parramatta. That's the name of the venue, P-H-I-V-E. 
6.30pm on Wednesday, the 24th of May, and we're going to put an event link in the show notes. We are going to be answering listener messages. It's going to be agony aunt and uncle time and Mm. talking about pop culture. It's going to be a great time talking about feelings. We love our feelings. Let's get in amongst the feelings. Big thank you to our producer, Sarah Mashman, our sound engineer, Tim Jenkins. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Yagara and Turbal people, on the lands of the Kula Nation, and on the land of the Muanina people from country around Nipaluna. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.